Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm in Psalm 18. It says, as for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. That is awesome. We're going to have a great show today. Rob Blue is going to be joining me in just a second. I'm looking forward to that. And then David Michael is with uh, Project uh, Psalm 78. It's got a very fascinating story. I'm Equipping kids and your grandkids to be grounded in Christ and to know him and to have a very detailed and organized plan. You're going to be impressed by his passion. And then Dr. Mark Rutland is going to be joining me in hour two, The Courage to Heal. It's going to be a great show. I'm looking forward to it. But my first guest is uh, always with me on Tuesdays, and I'm so grateful. He's the executive editor of The Daily Signal. Rob Bluey is my guest, and he's on our studio line as we speak. Hello, Rob. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. How was your Fourth of July weekend, by the way? Well, we we celebrated our pride in America, Bill. It was wonderful, absolutely fantastic. And although it was uh, not quite at what a usual fourth is, we we typically head down uh, into the nation's capital to see the fireworks. Uh, We we had a little community display, uh, but uh, uh, certainly great to be spend time with with some of the with the family and. and just a, just a fantastic moment to recognize all that we have to be grateful for in this wonderful country. Indeed. All right, I've got some questions for you. I know you're ready because you always are. Would you explain to me what a faithless elector is? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, the Supreme Court uh, is hard at work again uh, deciding this case uh, unanimously. It doesn't seem that we have too many unanimous decisions in the Supreme Court, but uh, but this one they did. Uh, this was really a, a strong decision in favor of the Electoral College. As you know, the left wants to dismantle the Electoral College. They don't like it, uh, frankly, because uh, I think Donald Trump uh, and pre- prior to that, George W. Bush, uh, won the presidency because they followed the, the path of the Electoral College and not the national popular vote. And what this uh, faithless elector case really uh, demonstrated was that when you have an Electoral College, it's actually not a, a direct election of the president. What you have are these um, uh, individuals who are, the, are selected by the states as electors, and they cast the votes as the state uh, vote. So if uh, Colorado or New York decides to uh, to vote for a certain candidate, the electors uh, go to the U.S. Capitol and they cast their votes in favor of that particular candidate or that party. And there have been instances throughout our history where there have been electors who have been faithless because they have cast their votes for others. Uh, in the case uh, of, of the matter decided before the court, uh, John Kasich being one of them, uh, who was you know obviously not uh, somebody who was in competition between uh, between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in 2016. And what the court said is that the states can impose uh, penalties. They have those electors have to follow what the state uh, insists on. So uh, it, it prevents uh, kind of chaos and confusion from reigning over the 2020 election. With uh, especially if it's a close uh, close vote. At last I I saw was. They're projecting Joe Biden. I think they have 268, which would be too short, um, you know, of, of what you need, 270. So if it is 
that close and uh and we find ourselves in a situation where there's a tie uh 269 to 269 boy bill uh what uh what a situation it would be if somebody was faithless faithless mm-hmm. and didn't follow through on what their state wanted so rob if the left is interested in uh, doing away with the electoral college how was the supreme court unanimous that's a good question. So uh, the, the question was, uh, there, there's a movement afoot in this country uh, called the National Popular Vote Movement, in which states would go along with whatever the national popular vote is. Mm-hmm. And so what that would mean is states would be bound in 2016. If this was in place, this compact was in place in 2016, Hillary Clinton would be our president today because Hillary Clinton won the national popular vote. And states, even if those states didn't, uh, vote in favor of Hillary Clinton. Uh, let's take a, a, a deep red state like uh, Alabama, for instance. If Alabama uh, voted for uh, Donald Trump, uh, but the country as a whole voted for for Hillary Clinton, uh, you'd have a situation because they were part of that compact. And what the what the court did is they didn't necessarily weigh in specifically on that particular case, but what they said is states have the right uh, to instruct their electors to vote the way that the state votes. And so what that means essentially is that if a state says, no, look, we honor and respect the electoral college and the way that we've done things in this country uh, for a long time, and it's worked quite well, by the way, because it guarantees that large cities can't determine the election, but actually candidates have to campaign across 50 states. It gives each each of the states importance in the process of electing a president, uh, that that's what they need to do. So I think that the, it was an effort by the Supreme Court uh, to recognize uh, the constitutionality of the Electoral College and push back on some of these efforts to change it, which, by the way, Bill, are, are, are legally dubious and, uh, and might not actually play out. They've never been tested in a court of law because they don't yet have the 270 votes as part of their compact. Mm-hmm. Rob, I think I'm always a little skeptical of slogans. And, and when I see a slogan, I always go, what's behind it? And the agenda for Black Lives Matter is a little different from the slogan, isn't it? It, it certainly is. We've been doing a lot of uh, looking, uh, examination and investigation into this uh, at the Daily Signal, so I'm, I'm glad you, you raised the uh, issue. Uh, Fred Lucas, uh, a colleague of mine, actually just has a brand new piece where he examines the 18 corporations that gave money uh, to the Black Lives Matter group, the organization. The slogan is something that uh, that many Americans, uh, through public polling, it shows, uh, have have gotten behind. They they recognize that um, that the Black Lives Matter, and uh, and and I think that in many cases, people's minds have been changed on that. Uh, at least if you believe the public polling. But but what the slogan means is different from what the organization that goes by the same name represents. And that organization is led by two Marxists. Marxism, of course, refers to Karl Marx and his philosophy, which has been used throughout history uh, to take away freedoms from people, uh, to justify the murder and torture of individuals uh, throughout the world. Uh, certainly not a system that we'd want to bring to the United States. Uh, the group also wants to abolish the nuclear family. Mm-hmm. So they uh, they believe in in a situation where a community or a village would would raise a family and not necessarily a mother and a father. Uh, I think for all of us who know how what what has been successful about America is uh, this this type of information. And so I, uh, I, I I you know it's Bill. It's one of those things where. I'm not necessarily surprised by the fact that uh, these corporations and others have rushed to support this this group, 
But at the same time, they need to be aware of the radical nature and the ideas that they're pushing uh, before they just suddenly, knee-jerkly, uh, get, get behind it. Rob, what, what do you think their agenda is with wanting to dismantle the nuclear family? Is, just, is it because there's so many kids being raised in single-parent homes and let's not pretend we can do it otherwise? Let's just say we'll take care of our kids and our families just in one big village. Well, uh, yeah, I, I don't even know if it's if it's that, Bill. I think it, it is a complete and fundamental transformation of how they view society and how they view uh, the situation uh, of, you know, how, how Christians have typically operated. I mean, there are so many different layers to this that <laughs> we probably would need multiple shows to, right. to explore. I do think that the one, uh, the one thing that is driving it, though, as you indicated, is the sense that uh, the community knows best. And I think that that's dangerous. I think that uh, as we know from our Christian teachings, as we know from uh, the, the looking at the data, uh, looking look at poverty data just for as one example. When you have a mother and a father who are leading a family, that family is more likely to be successful and not uh, not held back by poverty, as we've seen overtake so many families in this country. And so we need to get back to a situation where we are stressing the importance of a two-parent household. I understand that there are circumstances beyond anyone's control uh, where, where right. somebody may pass away early and, and my heart goes out to them. But in so many circumstances, it's, it's actually divorce or separation or um, you know, uh, uh, people not even not even getting married and uh, and 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 just in, engaging in uh, in a situation where uh, it doesn't lead to a, a productive outcome for for children, and I think that that's unfortunate. I, I've I've been blessed to have uh, to grow up in a two parent household, and I'm so thankful for it, and want to give that same experience to my children. And I think that anybody who who really wants to see our country cha change and turn around would recognize the importance of this. And that's why I think you've seen so many people just be alarmed at what Black Lives Matter is pushing, uh, even if we don't fully understand why. Uh, it's something that we know is dangerous. Robin, I look at some of the money that's been uh, pledged and, and the money that's been already given to the movement. It, the numbers are pretty staggering. Oh, yes, it, it is. It is significant. And where uh, you know, that, uh, where's that money going? Do you know? Well, it's going to the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, which was uh, the group that was started in in, in 2016 uh, with a sponsorship from Thousand Currents. Now, Thousand Currents, we, we know a little bit about them. They're a liberal nonprofit organization. Uh, Suzanne Rosenberg, who was convicted and imprisoned in, in the 1980s uh, for domestic terrorism, is uh, the vice chairwoman of Thousand Currents. She was part of the Weather Underground, that group that uh, engaged in some, uh, some really unseemly acts throughout our country. Um, the, 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 the groups, the companies that are donating have given large sums of money. And what we know about, uh, what we know about how it's all being funneled in is, uh, you know, these, the, this nationwide network, this Black Lives Matter network is engaged in a, in a number of things. Uh, for instance, a lot of activism and protests on the streets, some of which has turned violent. Um, efforts to change laws uh, in, in cities, uh, such as defunding the police. That remains one of the central pillars of this organization. And so I think that they're using it in a variety of ways. Uh, but I think that ultimately, Bill, uh, we probably don't know how they're using it yet because there's mm -hmm. so much of it. I don't know that they've even effectively uh, been able to deploy all of it. But what we do know is that it'll be used in many ways that are adverse to uh, the worldview of, I think, a lot of conservatives and Christians uh, who, who think that 
it is, isn't necessarily the best approach to remove law enforcement from our streets. Yeah, that's a really good question, Rob. Let me take a short break. When I come back, I want to ask you more about that defunding the police. Rob Louis is my guest. He's the executive editor of The Daily Signal. That web address is dailysignal.com. We'll take a short break and we will be right back. We are back with Rob Bluey, executive editor of The Daily Signal. You can always go to dailysignal.com. So, Rob, if there's more defunding of the police and then you start to think of what just has gone on in New York and Chicago the last weekend, the whole thing seems kind of nuts, doesn't it? It it certainly does. Uh, We've seen a a significant crime wave across uh, our major cities. Uh, In many cases, the mayors uh, seem... Uh, 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 you know, blind to, or, or, or in some cases, um, just completely unprepared for how to deal with it. Uh, and I think what you're also seeing is, uh, is perhaps, uh, you know, citizens of these cities asking, where, where is the police? Well, after being demonized for the past, you know, six weeks, uh, you know, many of these police officers probably, you know, are, are you know, a little bit uncertain or afraid uh, of, of what, uh, what might happen to them. Um, and so their defunding is happening in, in places like Minneapolis, uh, where, where, you know, the murder of George Floyd took place. Um, and, uh, you know, it's one of those things that I think you're starting to see take take place in, in other cities in different ways. So if it's not the entire elimination of the police, the complete defunding, it is taking away millions or in some cases a billion dollars uh, from their budget, which would certainly hamstring them to to have, you know, a sufficient number of officers who could respond to the, the crime wave. Uh, you know, I think it's it's really interesting to take a look at, at a big city like New York, which had made some great strides and success in reducing the number of murders in its city. And you've just seen that explode under the under the leadership of Bill de Blasio. And uh, and he's somebody who's been at the leading edge of this. Um, and so I know that it's easy to point fingers and uh, and say, look, these are all big city liberal mayors. But at the same time, these are human lives that are being lost. And uh, and our heart go- must go out to, to those families who, who have lost those lives. And we need to get to a better better spot uh, where, first of all, we don't have crime uh, plaguing these cities like it is, but we can't have a situation where when citizens are in need, there's no one that they can turn to for help. And in most cases, those police are the first responders. Right. And we're also starting to see some unintended consequences. I think I read that there was 500,000 uh, middle-class people leaving New York. Yeah, that's true. I, I think that uh, people will be fleeing some of the big cities. Uh, I mean, imagine if you were living in, in Seattle uh, when, when CHOP set up a you know, shop. I mean, it was certainly a situation that, uh, that I wouldn't want to be a part of, and I think people would, would naturally want to you know, get as far away from it as possible. So, yes, I do think that that is a situation that uh, we can expect to see more of uh, as these cities grapple with these, these, uh, these crimes. And Chicago being another example, Bill. I mean, we've known about this problem in Chicago for years, uh, and it's frustrating that nothing seems to be uh, happening as a result of it, except this embrace of uh, defunding the police. Uh, that that seems like the last thing that you would want. And when you look at the public polling on this, I, I go back to the public polling. I mean, the the the, the, the radical activists who are calling for these actions 
uh, are are in the minority. They uh, they they are. This is not a popular sentiment, uh, and it's not a popular sentiment even with the African American community. So I think that uh, what we need it right now is our political leaders to to have some common sense and recognize uh, what's going on and and start calling out those radical activists and telling them uh, to take their campaign somewhere else. Uh, we're going to protect our cities. Well, minorities and poor people in cities will suffer a great deal from the defunding of police. If there's less police presence, there'll be more crime in those areas. It will be terrible. That's absolutely correct. Uh, you know, and when you have, have more crime, I mean, we're already dealing with the situation where people's, uh, the American people's confidence is shaken because of COVID-19. There's already a lot of fear uh, because people might not have a job. Uh, people don't, people who, who might be more susceptible to the virus uh, are fearful of going out and kind of reengaging. Uh, we've seen the, you know, the number of cases uh, increase, even though the number of deaths, uh, you know, has, has, has not um, followed that same trajectory. But uh, just all of the uncertainty that's going on in the world right now, the last thing we need is is to introduce more crime and, and a, a situation where people feel that lawless, lawlessness is, uh, is running rampant. Mm-hmm. Speaking of crime, uh, not to change the subject too much, but uh, Jeffrey Epstein, that whole story is continues to be weird because they finally have gotten in custody his his uh, right-hand person, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell. I don't yes. know if I'm saying her name right. I don't know if anyone knows how to say it. But how do they keep her safe? She's got a lot of secrets yeah, that well, she could tell. Well, certainly a lot of concern about this. And uh, and, and based on what happened uh, with uh, Jeffrey Epstein, I think uh, rightfully so, people want to make sure that not only is she on, on, on suicide watch, but uh, she's being heavily guarded. Uh, because there are some people who I, I'm sure would want to, um, you know, prevent her from ever having uh, any sort of public testimony. A lot of uh, a lot of high profile, prominent individuals, politicians, actors, uh, you you name it, people from acro- around the globe, I think, could potentially be implicated here in the Jeffrey Epstein case. Uh, and for a long time, I think the American people have been demanding answers and wanting to know uh, what's being covered up. And so this is an opportunity to get to the bottom of some of it. Uh, perhaps not all of it, but uh, but certainly um, yes. I think uh, I think that you know we we want to have justice for those who were were harmed by by Jeffrey Epstein, and uh, this is a positive development in the case, uh, bringing her into custody. Mm-hmm. Rob, how much longer can the cancel culture continue? Oh, well, hopefully not much longer, Bill. Uh, I think the American people are hopefully tiring of it. I, I also hope that they see some of the hypocrisy uh, that, uh, that that individuals face. Uh, you look at what happened to Drew Brees, uh, the popular quarterback for the New Orleans Saints, when he, you know, spoke out in in favor of uh, of our American uh, heritage and flag, uh, and was forced to repeatedly apologize for it. And uh, and then the. the not nearly the same type of reaction when, um, you know, a, a player for the Philadelphia Eagles, Deshaun Jackson, uh, you know, had uh, some some really grotesque remarks uh, and and uh, uh, embracing uh, of Louis Farrakhan uh, today and, and yesterday. So I, um, I I think that people are starting to see that um, there there are certain individuals for certain things that they say are treated differently, and hopefully they will will begin to push back on that. 
Um, I think it's one of the reasons why uh, I agree with him or disagree with him. President Trump refuses to apologize for anything because he feels that he's not going to give in to this cancel culture mentality. Uh, he's going to state his beliefs. He's going to say what he feels. And he's not going to left, let the left badger him into constant apologies. And there have been individuals who've lost their jobs over this. I usually just saw this recently uh, with the situation um, that, 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 that played out with a, with a prominent uh, defense um, contractor uh, over a position that, uh, that he took uh, 30 years ago and uh, was, was resurfaced and, and had to resign from, from the company. So, uh, Bill, I mean, it is, it is scary uh, to think, uh, you know, that, that what, we, what we may have believed uh, and, and said, and, and maybe we've changed our mind on certain things, but it doesn't seem to matter. There, there's no mercy or grace given. Uh, you're just immediately drowned out of your job, and, uh, mm-hmm. and you and your family are left to suffer the consequences. Now, Rob, I know you live in in Virginia. Do you see more stores and restaurants that have gone from temporary closed to permanently closed? We we certainly have seen that. We've seen that all across the country. I think Virginia being uh, one example of it. It's hard to to quantify the exact numbers, but you certainly see the empty storefronts, and you you start to wonder, Bill, if those are a result of. Um, uh, the lockdown policies that uh, that some of the governors uh, have imposed on these states, which is, again, why the work that we've done with the National Coronavirus Recovery Commission is so important because it really stresses local decision making. And I think in too many cases, we've seen governors abuse their power and impose statewide lockdowns when uh, those decisions are best handled at the at the local level. And, uh, and and actually, I feel fortunate that in in, in Northern Virginia, uh, you know, that's that's essentially what's be, what's happening. They, the leaders of Northern Virginia agree with them or disagree with them, made the case to the governor that they should operate on their own time frame uh, because of their proximity to Washington D.C. and Maryland, and uh, they were given that freedom to do so. So. Um, you know, I, I sometimes think that we're we're making decisions, uh, unwise decisions uh, already. Uh, the public school in in in, uh, in Northern Virginia, the largest district, Fairfax County, has decided that it wants uh, to have kids come back to school for two days a week. Hmm. Um, if we if we maintain you know the current the, the kind of the status quo with cases, and you're already seeing uh, teachers uh, reject that and say that no, it needs to be all virtual. Well. I, I think that that's going to have significant implications on on working families uh, if if public schools remain closed and there has to be virtual learning. Parents can't go back to work and leave these kids uh, alone at home uh, for for schooling. So that means that they're not going to be able to return to their their normal lifestyles uh, and and get back into the office. So uh, it's uh, it's going to be a tricky tricky thing to navigate, Bill. But uh, you're seeing a big push coming out of the White House today for us to return the kids back to school. I think because they recognize the implications if you don't do that. Mm-hmm. There was a discussion I had yesterday with a guest. Uh, there was a guy named Phil Kirpin who did some research, and there were 435 child care centers that never closed because they were serving children of essential workers. And out of uh, 10,558 children and adults, there were 19 cases of COVID. Well, and th- and that's like again, the, the, if you look at the data, and this is what what the local officials should be doing, the cases among children remain relatively low. Now, yeah. there are some extreme examples of uh, you know Kawasaki disease that, sure. that get you know blown up in the media, and everybody, all, all the parents, you know, <laughs> get nervous about that. But when you look at at a whole, and that that statistic you just cited being one of them, it 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 shows that there are relatively fewer risks when it comes when it comes to kids. Yeah. Uh, we know 
know that this is a, this is a virus that it primarily affects those who are more vulnerable and older. Yeah, Rob, you're always, uh, I always love having you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. Thank you, Bill. It's always good you to bet. be with you. Yeah, Rob Blue has been my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. We'll th- take a little break. We'll be uh, right back with David Michael. Welcome back to the show. I'm so glad to be inviting David Michael onto the program. He's co-founder and executive uh, director of Truth78. I'm always curious when a guy like David, like me, has got two first names, how confusing it can be throughout much of his life. I'm wondering what that has been like for you. David, welcome. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So what is it like having so two, you, two first names, just like I was, me? I was going to ask, you want me to answer that question? And um, Well, I probably imagine you um, have had similar experience. I love the name David. I'm so glad my parents named me. I'm happy with both names, and like you probably, uh, you get people say, what's your last name? And I say, Michael, no, what's your last name? And I say, it's Michael. Right. And, uh, you, get so, you have it much worse than I do, David. You think so? Oh, I know so. I know so. They say, what is, what is your, your, your last name? I go, Arnold. They go, oh, okay. But if, if I were to say Bill, they'd go, no, 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 what's your yeah. last name? Right. Anyway, I think we beat this one into the ground. But uh, I'm also <laughs> glad you're on the show. And we're excited to talk about True 78. This is uh, a, a long-term vision. Uh, for discipling children and youth, and I want to hear more. All right. Well, so we used to be uh, Children Desiring God, founded under Desiring God Ministry, John Piper. A few years ago now, it's been actually officially three years ago, we renamed ourselves to Truth 78. Our focus is not merely children, but parents have always been a focus. The church has been our heart focus youth. Also, Psalm 78 has always been kind of the signature text of the Bible that defined everything that we were about. And so to be able to emphasize our commitment to truth, taking that truth that we've been entrusted with, that Psalm 78 talks about, and faithfully passing on to the next generation, that really captured what we have been about now for decades. I love it, and I love Psalm 78. It's been a favorite of mine for a long, long time. So we're having, uh, we're proclaiming July 8th as Psalm 78 Day, aren't we? Yeah, with 78 in our name and Psalm 78 being kind of the focus of our ministry and mission, it just made sense that July 8th every year ought to have some special significance for us. So we're trying that out. Uh, There's a place where you can actually register these special days. And so one date this month is National Gorgeous Grandma Day. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And there's actually go online and register your day. So we're thinking about actually making all this official and having July 8th be Psalm 78 day. I love that. I watched uh, John Piper's uh, endorsement of this project, and I don't think I've Mm. ever seen him so excited ever. He looked like he was going to pull a hamstring. Well, uh, that's not surprising. He's been uh, so supportive ever since our founding back in 1998. He's been probably one of our greatest cheerleaders. It was really out of his ministry that True 78 was formed. We came, I'm a grandpa now, and so it was 1980. We were four years married, my wife and I, um, in Minneapolis, 
and decided to go visit um, a month into John's ministry at Bethlehem. We visited and never left. Um, so I was there for till we moved to Indiana in 2014. So, and it was sitting under his preaching. I was, I think, the the roots of our ministry and our passion for this ministry was really born. My experience was not unlike um, many who had grown up in a Christian home, but my parents were believers when I was born and faithfully took me to Sunday school, were in solid Bible-believing churches all of those years. I went to a solid evangelical Christian college steeped in Bible courses and training there, went off to seminary, got my master's of divinity in another solid evangelical seminary. And two years out of seminary, I'm sitting in the in the um, sanctuary at Bethlehem Baptist Church and asking myself, why am I hearing about this God in this way for the first time? Um, it just, um, my eyes were getting opened to see God in ways that I had never seen him before, seeing his glory in a way that I had never seen before. Questions were being asked that I answered that I'd never asked before. God mattered like he had never mattered before. God-centered, Christ-exalting, congregational worship was just opening up the floodgates for our increasing affections for God. And ask myself, how, after all this experience, could I have missed this? And we didn't have to go far to figure out what the answer to that question. And it was just upstairs in our Sunday school rooms. What we found was what... The, the very defective thinking about God that John was correcting downstairs in the worship area week after week through his faithful pe- preaching, we were creating the same defective thinking about God upstairs in our Sunday school rooms. About 10 years of that, I eventually came on staff at, at uh, Bethlehem, was a pastor over their local outreach, and so serving as a pastor seeing this preaching just impact not only our lives, but so many other people and seeing how we were teaching our kids. It was just really impressed upon us. We've, we've got to do better than this. Why, why wait till I was 28 years old at the time, 27. Our kids shouldn't have to wait till they're 28 years old to figure this out. Why don't we start teaching them the right way from the beginning? And that was really the roots of, of True 78 and why we felt so compelled to do something about it. And Yeah, it's David, it's a very compelling story. You, you had me hooked early on. Let's talk about how it's more important than ever to raise children who are confident in God. Well, yeah, I think this gets back to where we were, what we were seeing. Typical Sunday school lessons um, often portray the truth in a way that hides the glory of God. So in Psalm 78, one of the key verses there is verse 4, where it says, we will not 
hide them from their children, but tell the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that we had done. And what we were seeing in our Sunday school rooms was we were hiding the glorious, the God-glorifying realities of a story in order to exalt man. And so, you know, downstairs through the preaching, we're hearing about a glorious God who was fulfilling his promises by raising up Moses to lead his people upstairs the children are hearing about Miriam, who helped her mother by raising, by watching her brother Moses in the river. And Miriam was a good helper. Therefore, little children, you need to help your mothers. Totally missing the reality of what mm-hmm. God was doing. Or um, upstairs, the children were learning the reason why Jesus called his disciples. You know why Jesus called his disciples? He called them, the lesson goes, because he needed helpers. Jesus still needs helpers, and you can be his helper too. Now, what are we teaching kids about this God, the Lord Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of God the Father? What are we saying about him when we teach them he needs helpers, like he he needs a four-year-old to help him? And I I hear the heart in, in the, that lesson writer, and just they want kids to feel that they're special mm-hmm. to God, but totally missing the reality that there's a God in heaven who made the world and everything in it, and he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He does not need a four-year-old or a 40-year-old to help him do his work. And so when you're, when you're teaching children that Jesus needs helpers, then where do they go when they're in a crisis? Where do they go when the world is shaking? How do we give them a firm place to stand if we're sending them to a Jesus who needs helpers? Or um, so or any sense of, you know, just look at what's going on in the world right now. And I just, I've asked, you know, is this ever going to (laughs) end? You know, where's all of this going to lead? And if you've got a notion of a God who allows, permits Joseph to get thrown into a pit, which sounds like a horrible thing. So Joseph's world was rocking big time, right? And he didn't see what was happening, but even he had confidence in this God who was a God who accomplishes everything that he sets out and there's to do and that there's purpose and reason behind everything that he does. And so if you can show children this God who has unstoppable purposes, I just reading in uh, in. Habakkuk, the first chapter where he, you know, Habakkuk so overwhelmed by all the craziness that was going on uh, in the first four verses of that chapter. And then the first words of comfort that the Lord gives is, I'm doing things right now that if you, if you knew it, you wouldn't believe it. And to have a picture of a God who's that big, (laughs) Gives, gives me a firm place to stand that this is not 
accidental. There's what we're seeing is chaos and craziness right now, and that there's a God ruling over all of that, um, bringing his sovereign purposes to pass. And in that, I feel hopeful and confident in the midst of all the the craziness that's going on. And so I, I just feel passionate about giving our kids right now a firm place, a, a rock beneath them, because who knows what what they're going to face if this is what we're experiencing right now, what's coming down the road that um, they're going to need to be ready for. David, that was beautifully expressed, and I I'm in a full agreement with what you just said. And I'm going to take a little break. Uh, David Michael is my guest. He's co-founder and executive editor, um, director, along with his wife Sally of Truth Seventy Eight. Big day is tomorrow, uh, seven eight. Right. Yeah, we'll take a little break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. So glad to be talking to David Michael today. He's co-founder and executive director of Truth78. We're excited because tomorrow is the big uh July the 8th day, and uh, we're going to talk about um, his mission, Truth 78, equipping and helping children become biblically grounded and uh, and know the truth at a young age. And I, I love your approach, uh, David. I appreciate so much that you don't want to um, you don't want to talk down to kids. You want to give them straight talk and let them know right up front who, who's they belong to and and the God that they are serving. So if you would talk a little bit about the Truth 78 and some of the tools that are available. I know you've got some resources and some, uh, you've even got your own app, don't you? Uh, we do for uh, Bible memory. Uh, it's called Fighter Verses. So Fighter Verses would be a, a great example of, you know, every Sunday school probably has Bible verses for children to memorize. And um, just to give you an idea for how we think. Um, you know, the Bible's a big book. There's a lot of good verses in there to memorize. Do we think about what do we want to give our children over the next first 20 years of their life? What do we want to have into their head by way of Bible memory? And so the Fighter Verse program actually originated with my sister-in-law who taught third grade in Virginia for years. And she wanted to get her third graders memorizing. And so she, she came up with a collection of verses. She called them fighter verses, verses that help you fight the fight of faith. So it's great to memorize the Christmas story, but when the world is shaking and you need a firm place to stand, um, what kind of verses do you want your kids to stand on? And so she had a list that she worked with. Sally and I took that list. Our kids were coming along, and we, we asked the same question. Over the 20 years that we have with our 18 years or whatever that our kids are having, what's the collection of verses we want them to memorize? And then eventually at Bethlehem, Sally and I came on I took responsibility for the discipleship of children in 1996. And so we asked the same question. What are the, the verses that you want kids to memorize 
over the course of their life, and we selected verses. John Piper spoke into it. We asked our elders to kind of speak in what's what's the this collection. We came up with a set of, that you memorize over a five-year period, and there's an app now that goes along with that. If you can go to either the True78 website or uh, fighterverses.com, and you can download all those verses. You can get an app that has all sorts of memory aids or whatnot. But that's an example of what we would call a discipleship mentality. So when it comes to memory, it's good to memorize, but let's think strategically. What's going to feed faith and give these young disciples some a sword that they can fight with for faith? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's this discipleship mentality that I think is probably unique for True 78 is um, we, we want to impress upon the church and on parents a discipleship mindset and then provide tools that help them do that. So the fighter verse is one of the tools that we use. We have curriculum that we've developed that can be used in the church or in homes um, and a number of resources that take those key doctrinal truths, you know, so it teaches the story of Moses in the biblical God-centered way. So everything that we do um, is taught with the same mindset, but it's, it's, it's got a long range view. So we're, we start in the nursery ages. So as soon as kids can crawl, basically we're, we've got a, a strategy for what we can do in the nursery to begin impressing upon them truths that will be reinforced. And it's really, you know, kind of an 18 to 20 year plan of how do you take this brand new baby (laughs) that's coming into your life and what over the course of the next two decades do you want them to know about God and what's your plan for doing it? Mm -hmm. And we, we really offer a plan, um, and resources that will help you do that. Mm-hmm. David, my uh, producer, Rebecca, is chomping at the bit to ask you a question. <laughs> so here, here it comes. Well, the, thank you, All David. Right. There's four kiddos in our household, and, and my husband and I are definitely, you know, we, we start our day with a word, we're praying with them, and we're doing memorization. And like you mentioned before, in your experience, it, you can do all those things and yet still miss the big picture of that personal relationship with God. And so um, would you mind just speaking to that and, and how we as parents impress upon them uh, the need to make faith real for them. It's about getting to know the real God. A big part of our ministry has been to work, especially in the church, has been to work with parents and to help them address those questions. So the first thing we tell parents is you and your husband have to be clear on what you want to accomplish spiritually in the life of your children. So simple example, as a pastor, I was amazed how many kids growing up in the Christian homes in our church would come along, you know, they'd be in our church, Baptist tradition, so they would, time would come for them to be baptized, and that required an interview, and I often, in my role, did those interviews, and I was amazed at how many children growing up in the church, in Christian homes, did not have a functional understanding of the gospel. 
They, they knew Jesus dies, died for their sins. They knew that it was important to ask Jesus into their heart. Many of them could say, yes, I've accepted Jesus. But you ask the next question, like, what does it mean to accept Jesus into your heart? Or Jesus died for your sins. Why is sin a problem for God? And how does Jesus' death solve that problem? I'm looking at this thinking, okay, we got kids growing up this church who don't even understand the gospel. So as parents, our two girls, Sally and I earlier said, let's not let these kids out of the house without them having a solid understanding of the gospel. True 78 says, let's, let's create some resources that are going to help with that. And so the very first resource, it's an illustrated book called The World Created, Fallen, Redeemed, and Restored. So the gospel begins with creation. They need to understand the fall. They need to understand redemption. So this is for early elementary, upper elementary age. We've got another resource for parents that's called Helping Children Understand the Gospel. Uh, we've got a very substantial family devotional that comes with workbooks for the kids called Glorious God, Glorious Gospel. And then we have a 40-week um, curriculum that we teach kindergartners, Jesus, what a savior. So at kindergarten, we're introducing the foundational dimensions of the gospel. And that's just one stream where we say, you and your husband sit down say, okay, let's make sure our kids get the gospel beyond knowing that Jesus died for their sins. And here's our strategy for doing that. Uh, another key strategy for me, I was passionate about my daughter's understanding the sovereignty of God. I mean, it was the sovereignty of God that was just, my eyes were open to his glory in ways just seeing that there's a God in heaven ruling over the universe. So how are you going to teach your kids sovereignty? Well, we introduced that concept at least by first grade. It actually is in preschool, but where we teach children, and it's called the ABCs of God, or the yeah, ABCs of God, where kids are introduced for the first time, God is sovereign. God's the boss. He's in charge. And try to build that concept into the kids. Well, by the time they get to sixth grade, we've got my favorite curriculum that we teach is a 40-week study. It's called My Purpose Will Stand. And I'll tell you, just if, if my kids and my grandkids could get that truth, that's going to carry it, you know? So as a parent, I just, we were passionate. So let's make sure our kids get this. You could sit with a child on your lap, teach them these truths, or you could lead family devotions. And it's a way for parents to just kind of reinforce these things as the children grow. Mm -hmm. so that's a long answer to a, a good great answer, question. Though. It's just the short answer is have, have in your mind as a couple, as parents, to church leaders as well, who are leading children's ministry, get get a plan in your mind and a and a, a, a direction. What is it that you want to accomplish over the next twenty mm -hmm. years, and then act on it? Uh, David, it's been so amazing hearing both your head and your heart speak about this, and I'm inspired by what you've done and the hard work you've done. And you've challenged all of our listeners, no doubt, whether it's with their kids or grandkids. And I'll send you to truth78.org. David Michael has been my guest. So thanks so much for doing the show. Yeah, if I could just mention one other thing, if any of this is compelling, um, 
we just released a book entitled Zealous, Seven Commitments for the Discipleship of the Next Generation. This takes everything that I've been talking about and puts it in a very short, it's 100 pages, it just captures the heart, vision, mission of what we're about. I would send that free to anybody who requests it. It's called Zealous, Seven Commitments for the Discipleship of the Next Generation. You could go on our website and get it that way. It'd be a great next step. Yeah. Well, we appreciate your generosity, and we love the word free. So thank you very much. Truth78.org. David, Michael, thanks so much. Have a great rest of the day. And you too. Yep. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back. Listening to the Faith Radio Network, your home for relevant Bible preaching and family focused teaching. Join interactive talk programming on topics that matter. Our mission is to lead people to Christ and to nurture believers in their faith through Christ centered media. We hope that you grow closer to God each day as you listen because together we're growing in our faith. Faith Radio. Learn more at MyFaithRadio.com. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.